1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. one 450 6624 Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Cholai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show starts this hour. WireGuard. Linus Torvalds made headlines this week when he started talking about WireGuard. He went to the Linux mailing list and said, hey, here's the thing. I skim this code, it's only 4,000 lines, it is incredible and we need to get this merged as soon as possible. Now to me, that spoke volumes right off of the bat because Linus doesn't, I mean he doesn't, the speed that Linus moves, he doesn't do anything quickly. He certainly doesn't call for half-baked code to get merged into the kernel. So when you start looking at that and, and, and his just skimming of the code is enough to say this warrants immediate merger, let's get this merged as fast as possible. I immediately said this is, this is absolutely what we have to talk about on Tuesday's episode of Ask Noah, because as you guys have probably come to expect by now, we take these topics, we do in-depth, in-depth detailed research, and then bring that content to, to you in a condensed one-hour radio show. Now, I, to be perfectly honest with you, do not know a lot about WireGuard. What I can tell you is that WireGuard is a open-source VPN pro- protocol system essentially. And uh, it aims to totally replace OpenVPN and OpenSSL or IPsec and and StrongSwan uh, uh, setups essentially. And uh, so I started looking around. I said who in the community knows a lot about this or has been playing with this? And I found uh, a gentleman that I have known for some some time and have developed a friendship with and uh, that's Jim Salter. Now Jim Salter is an expert on A lot of Linux things. Jim runs a IT consulting company, much like AltaSpeed does, where he actually spends a lot of time converting businesses to Linux server infrastructures. And he's doing that with Linux uh, virtualization. So obviously, Jim spends a lot of time setting up, deploying, supporting, maintaining VPNs. So I reached out to Jim and I, I, I thought, you know, I, I wonder if he has, you know, any knowledge about this or if he's played with it. Well, it turns out Jim has written a fantastic blog on WireGuard. And we'll have that blog link for you in the show notes this week. And uh, he goes over it. And the, the first thing that Jim opens with is he says, listen, I am not a WireGuard expert. OK, so if you're expecting to hear everything perfectly, uh, that's not me. But what I can give you. Is my zero day experience what it was like for me to to get on WireGuard, set WireGuard up, and use it. And uh, what you'll need to know if you want to just play with it. And you know the thing is that is what we really push on this show. We push people to play with technology, to experiment with technology, to learn about technology. And Jim has done just that. He's done an excellent job breaking this down. So I thought I'd bring him on the program so he can do that for you live on the Ask Noah show. Hey, Jim, welcome to the Ask Noah program. Hey Noah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And you know, the other thing, I'm not just going to let this fly under the radar because I know you put a lot of work into it. Uh, Jim spent the afternoon perfecting his audio setup so that he would sound, and he probably is probably one of the best sounding guests we've ever had on the Ask Noah program. And I just want to take up just a couple seconds and say thank you for doing that because it does make a big difference to our audience. (laughs) Very welcome. Okay, so you you write in your blog, you say, I got super interested in WireGuard when Linus Torvalds Heaped fulsome praise on the design. If you're not familiar with Linus's commentary, trust me, that's an extremely fulsome in context. So I, I'm interested. Why is this such a big deal? The way that Linus responded to this.
0: Well, it's a big deal because uh, you know Linus. He's he's uh, well. He's very famously not a super polite kind of guy. If he says he likes your code, he's not just saying it to be polite. He really means it. More likely. He's going to tell you your code is absolutely horrible when he thinks it has promise but he wants you to fix it okay so when he says something like this is a work of art compared to the other you know applications in the space that really means
1: something fair enough uh that's what got me excited about this too is the way that linus responded to this i think says a lot now what is wireguard if somebody has never heard of it before this is the first time they're hearing it you know we kind of t- touched on the fact that it's, it's some sort of a vpn thing but what is it exactly
0: WireGuard is a kernel mode VPN. Um, so basically what that means is when you look at, I'm just gonna go with OpenVPN because it's what I'm most familiar with. Um, OpenVPN creates interfaces called uh, tap or ton interfaces. They look okay. like normal hardware network interfaces, but what they actually are is encrypted tunnels from point A to point B, so that you can um, not only talk from one computer to another securely over the internet, but you can actually route entire networks from one place to another. And even though the intervening network connection isn't trusted, you're heavily encrypted and authenticated so you can be pretty sure that your traffic won't be intercepted or messed with.
1: Now, if I am an IT security expert and I am setting up a VPN system for some remote clients to connect in once in a while on their laptops and uh, and just VPN into work so I can send a printer docu- or print document over to the company printer, those kinds of things, is there a big difference between OpenVPN and uh, WireGuard?
0: If you don't already know one or the other, there's a huge difference.
1: Um, none of this stuff
0: is exactly easy, but to put it in context, uh, you know, I've got about 17 years' experience with OpenVPN, and it probably took me—it probably took me a couple of months before I was really, truly up to speed with something workable on OpenVPN. Back in the day, uh, I picked up WireGuard in about uh five or six hours while watching my kids on a sunday wow
1: and that was you'd never touched this before this is like you say in your article this is zero day you're just sitting down and playing with it and you were able to spec out a system that you're comfortable putting into production 24 7 365.
0: i'm getting there um i've got all the features now and actually as of like right now I would say I'm, I'm comfortable moving that into production. Uh, for my production, I would need to build some scripting around it to automate, you know, adding systems and taking systems away and my various management stuff. But yeah, I feel comfortable. That the configuration is solid and the crypto is solid, in part because I was actually talking to Jason uh, Duningard, WireGuard's uh, primary developer today, and he answered the lingering questions that I had about the crypto.
1: So this is an open source project there is an active open source community around this which means and and they're apparently very active in the community for people that have questions about crypto or the security or the implementation of this
0: uh, probably so to be honest with you I haven't really delved into the community much yet um, when I first started looking into it to set it up I was just looking immediately for you know a, a quick how-to. And none of the ones out there really answered what I wanted to do and the way I do it, which is why I wrote you know, the docs that I did on my blog.
1: One of the things that we struggle with at Alta Speed a lot is we have, so I'll give you an example, we have a law office, and they have offices scattered all over the state of Wisconsin. And uh, they're a bigger client of ours, and so we try to, we try to do things, uh, It doesn't. we don't really concentrate on the price so much as much as we concentrate on the quality of things. And um, one of the things that they really want is all of their offices to be interconnected, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And I'm wondering, is WireGuard a better solution for this than the traditional IPsec uh, and, you know, OSPF to, to move the, the heavy routing and, and all of that? Would I be better off with the WireGuard solution? The answer to that is probably, but,
0: you know, again, I'm only a couple of days in. Um, what I have seen so far is that in what testing I've done, it has been very quick to pick it up when I've interrupted its connections and, you know, then made them available again. Uh, if I drop the interface that I've got a WireGuard connection running over and then bring it back up, even without doing anything with configuring it specially to try to make it you know, more sensitive, uh, without me doing anything, the interface works again within 15 seconds, which has been pretty nice. That has really not been my experience with OpenVPN or IPSec.
1: When we look at site-to-site VPN systems, we oftentimes look at one router connected to another and then having, you know, like, for example, IPsec and creating that tunnel from one router to another. So the computers are connected, you know, behind the network and then then the router or the edge device handles the transition of traffic between those two networks. WireGuard is, as you mentioned, a kernel module. So is this designed to to be installed on all of the individual endpoints and those individual endpoints will automatically send their encrypted traffic through op- through uh, through this WireGuard tunnel to other endpoints on the other side of maybe the internet.
0: You could do that if you wanted to or you could just set up one server on either end and uh, do routing. I've actually been doing something very similar to that with OpenVPN, you know, for like I said well over a decade. Basically, you set up a single server in either office and you just forward the port that, uh, that, you know, that's listening for the VPN connection. And then in your edge router, which doesn't really need to understand the VPN at all, you just have a static route that says, hey, any packets that are destined for either my VPN tunnel or for the subnet of my remote office, I want you to chuck it at the open VPN server. And it takes care of everything from there. Gotcha. You can do the same thing with WireGuard.
1: Okay so that so it it would be it would more likely be a dedicated machine now one of the things or one of the directions i could easily see the wire guard people going is getting this set up on like the microtech devices or the pfSense devices and so you i mean because it's integrated at the kernel level i would imagine it would be a fairly straightforward process to start having you know maybe a free nas box where that's one of the features that you can just enable vpn access and like as you so eloquently put you open a port on your firewall and all of a sudden now your network is open for vpn connections
0: Well, with PFSense, you kind of have it exactly backwards. Um, WireGuard being a kernel module means that you're not going to be able to run it in kernel mode on PFSense because it's a BSD-based distribution. It's not a Linux kernel. However, there is a user mode mode version of what normally runs in the kernel in WireGuard that's written in Go. Um, You certainly would be able to use that on BSD or in PFSense. Right now, I believe, I haven't poked at it, but from what I've seen, Um, If you're running lead, which is, you know, the the newest iteration of was DDWRT and then open WRT and now lead appears to be the distribution of of the week. Um, I believe they've already got a WireGuard kernel module available in leads kernel. So you can run in kernel mode on, you know, like an ARM router
1: that's running lead from what I can tell. That's very cool. I I really like this. So if if somebody is new to WireGuard or maybe new to VPNs altogether, do they have to have a basic networking knowledge to be able to set some of this stuff up or does your blog, you know, because you basically it's kind of monkey see monkey do. I mean, you give every command you've run, you show every file, you show the output, all of these things. Could could somebody do a monkey see monkey do following your blog article here Or, or is it do they have to have some underlying knowledge?
0: Yeah, I, I think if somebody is a technical enthusiast and they want to learn, they can absolutely learn following the steps that I put in the blog. That's I mean, that's really my goal when I write documentation. I want somebody with very, very minimal knowledge of the space to be able to follow those instructions, see it work, and then be go, okay, now I'm kind of starting to understand this and be able to build on it and go from there because that's how I learned back in the day.
1: Freak Labs in the chat room says, I've heard rumblings about a kernel module for WireGuard on FreeBSD. Now, interesting, interestingly enough, just before uh, during our handoff from Linux Unplugged, the show that precedes uh, the Ask Noah show, we were just talking about it, and <laughs> one of the guys said, well, it won't be long before those BSD guys rip this off and, and port it to BSD. So maybe there will be a kernel module for WireGuard in the near future on BSD. JJ4884 in the chat room asked, does WireGuard support any other protocols such as Cisco AnyConnect? Any any sight on that or any insight into that? or Have you heard any rumblings there?
0: Uh, yes, I can give you some insight on that. And the insight there would be not only no, but hell no.
1: Okay. So it's emphatically not going to support Cisco AnyConnect. Now, the truth is, you know, I'd say, and I, I'm interested to see if your experience echoes mine. Ten years ago, it seems like every client I walked into, it was Cisco AnyConnect, Cisco AnyConnect, Cisco AnyConnect. And nowadays, I feel like every time I go into a client, Sometimes I still run into that. Oftentimes, though, I see a lot of clients have moved to to OpenVPN, and these are not open source enthusiasts. These are just people that want to get work done.
0: Yeah, uh, getting work done tends to be a lot easier with OpenVPN because you're not having to go buy a Cisco device that may or may not, you know, fit inside your your budget for a particular location or whatever. Yada yada yada. It's easier because you can just say, okay, it's OpenVPN. You know, I spin up an instance of it here, I install
1: the client there, I'm good to go. Absolutely. So if people wanted to learn more about this, where would they go? Uh, if they want to learn more, they can
0: literally just go to WireGuard.com. There's a ton of information there. Um, If you really want to get like deep down and and learn inner workings, there's a lot of deep documentation there. I just, I had trouble getting where I needed to go from there. I'm like I said, I'm I'm much more of a, just get it done and do it guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very Um, much, very much so. And not to drag the conversation totally off topic, but just because I have you and you're an interesting person to talk about this. Do you want to give a a, a plug to your OpenOID project and and kind of the, the 30 second elevator pitch on how that works and what you're doing with it? Because it's pretty cool.
0: Sure, absolutely. So uh, Openoid is the company that I do my own code development under and the flagship product there is called Sanoid. And uh, it's a uh, it's snapshot management and replication management for ZFS. Basically, it makes it as simple to use ZFS replication to get data from point A to point B as it would be to use SCP or RSync. Mm-hmm. And ZFS replication is amazing. Um, You know, if you've got, say, you've got 10 terabytes worth of data and you want to use rsync, the old tried and true, yeah, so your first copy, you got to move all 10 terabytes. The second copy, if you've only changed, say, 10 megabytes of that, that is all you have to move, but you have to read the entire 10 terabytes first on both ends. Right. So it's awful. ZFS replication is not that way. With ZFS replication, you already know what snapshots you have present on both sides. So if you've only changed 10 megs out of your 10 terabyte single file, you just immediately start flinging those 10 megs over the wire and that's all there is to it. Um, In addition to the replication part, the snapshot management, ZFS snapshots Uh, They complete instantly, no matter how large your data set is, uh, you know, even if it's in the hundreds of terabytes, you can take a ZFS snapshot and it's instant and atomic and preserves your entire file system in the condition it was when you took that snapshot. Similarly, you can roll back instantaneously to a snapshot or you can clone it into a uh, temporary or semi-permanent working stat. Uh, The difficult thing, so obviously this is something that you want to do to be able to recover from bad things that happen, whether it's your own stupidity or bad software or whatever, right? The problem is remembering to take those snapshots uh, before you need them. So what Sanoid does, is it lets you take a very simple configuration file and say, I want to keep 36 hourlies, 30 dailies, and three monthlies, and it will take
1: them for you on schedule, remove them for you. When they're out of policy, the whole nine, you don't have to worry about a thing. I love it and for those of you who have not seen Jim's demonstration it's really fantastic what he does is he'll take four monitors and he will set it up and he'll say here are here are three virtual or here's two virtual guests that are running on, on Liberty and here is my main server and here is my backup server and then you will be you'll be doing these commands live and you'll say okay let's go ahead and schedule the backups to run every minute or whatever it is that you do and you and people can watch in real time as this machine makes a copy to another physical machine and then you'll say now let's crash the server and you'll Crash one of these servers, and of course Windows does what it does best, and totally you know craps all over the bed. And then you say, now watch, let's restore, and you push, you enter another command, and boom, the the uh, snapshot goes back, and it restores in just a matter of minutes, and and you can see real time. It's not a video, it's not a it's not a preconceived thing. It's you literally drag a rack around with the demonstration of showing all of this technology, and it's all built on Linux, and it's absolutely fantastic. Thanks, Noah. Do we have a couple more minutes to talk about WireGuard or are we out of time? Uh, of course. No, no, no. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm out of questions, but yeah, let's talk about it.
0: Okay, so fabulous. Um, a couple of things I want to talk about is part of why it's it's easier and also part of, you know, now that I know the answers to the crypto issues, why it is a lot more secure than the existing implementations. Sure the uh so the first thing is uh everything that you need for all the crypto stuff including generating the keys and setting up the interfaces and all that it's all built into that project like with openvpn you know you got to have openvpn you've got to have open ssl and you've got to install easy rsa and you've got to create a certification authority you got to create certs signed by that ca and then create you know keys that go with those certs and it's a lot to deal with right sure and because it's so complex it's also very difficult to run Multiple separate OpenVPN instances on the same server or VM. Mm -hmm. It can be done, but it's it's tricky and it's complicated, and it, it makes you really nervous if you're trying to do it in production on something that you already have anything you care about, right? Right. But with WireGuard, you're it's it's a lot more. It's it's not just like SSH, but it's similar. Um, you just say wg keygen and you know, boom, you make a private key. Mm-hmm. You pipe that private key into wg pub key and mm-hmm. you get a public key based on that private key,
1: and that's it. So and you, you put can that exp- public key you can export you these th- out, right, and save them save them aside if you you know if you're one of those people that likes to organize your files. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um, I mean. By
0: default, it's it's literally just going to, you know, kind of barf them out uh, there on the console, but you can pipe those into files. And the way that you use them is it's, again, a lot like SSH. And you know, if you've ever used SSH key authentication, you just go into authorized, you know, underscore keys and you dump in the pub keys for people that you want to be able to connect, right? Right. Well, it's basically the same thing with WireGuard. With WireGuard, you'll have like a WG0.conf that defines... Uh, you know, a WireGuard 0 WG0 Zero interface, and you'll have uh, a selection of peers. And for each peer, you'll have that peer's pub key and what address
1: uh, you're supposed to route down that peer's tunnel. And that's really all there is to it. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And and in, in, in all of this, all of this stuff, by the way, because as he's talking about WG0.conf and all of this, all of these file names, all of these things are detailed in his website jrs-s.net. net So if you go to his blog, he has all of this written out. Of course, we'll have a link for that in the show notes if you go to podcast.asknoahshow.com as well.
0: So one more thing, uh, talking about the actual crypto, because there's been a lot of confusion yes. about this. and. When I was talking to Jason, he referenced a Hacker News discussion that unfortunately was a lot like Hacker News discussions tend to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But so the short version is, uh, as far as we know right now, WireGuard should be secure to everything. And unlike IPsec or uh, OpenVPN, so WireGuard is crypto versioned. It's not crypto agile. And until I talked to Jason, I didn't understand the difference. Okay. And the difference is, you know, you've got just a world of different, uh, you know, authentication schemes and cipher schemes and everything else that you can use with IPSec or the OpenVPN. They're all pluggable, yada, 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 and WireGuard doesn't have that. So, my concern was I said, you know, okay, so what happens, you know, if and when we discover that what we're doing now is no longer sufficient in the face of new technology? be it hardware mm-hmm. or software, mm-hmm. we need to upgrade. And the answer was, well, that's not a problem. You just, you have a new version. You know, this is V1.0 crypto. You do a V2.0 and you can have them side by side with the same application if you need to. And you just bring on your V2.0 that and then you disable is. the V1 and you don't even have to go offline. But here's the important part. And this isn't what I hadn't fully understood. Um... And I should have. I feel kind of bad that I didn't get this already. So all this pluggable crypto, and it's not just the cipher. It's also you know the authentication. You can have Diffie Hellman. You know, in one session on OpenVPN, you might be worried about your Diffie Hellman key, uh, your uh, authentication, and your digest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, because all those things are pluggable, before you can actually be encrypted and secure, you have to negotiate all that crap back and forth between right. the client and the server. So all that's out in the open where it can be you know, intercepted and attacked and messed with and snooped on. But by having this versioning stuff, there's none of that going on. Like all you really get is a much, much simpler interface where you're just basically saying, okay, I want V1.0, here's my pub key boom, that's it, you're encrypted. Right. So there's a lot less attack surface for unauthenticated users to poke at and bang on and try to get in. And if you've ever had you know, like a web application like say Roundcube for example, or PHP MyAdmin, and you know these really bad vulnerabilities come out and like nobody even has to be an authenticated user, they can slam it directly from the login page and exploit the system. That's what moving from crypto agility to crypto versioning mitigates. That is fantastic. Now, right? Now, the other big thing there is that uh, he explained to me some of what, because um, I'm, I'm really not a crypto guy, right? Like, I try to do all my P's right. and Q's and, and make sure I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm a sysadmin. Yeah, I but don't you find it really to, interesting, though, right? Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I don't pretend to really be a crypto yeah, dude. Yeah. So Jason explained that to me. and. Uh, you know, when you generate a key, one of the first things that you might think, if you're familiar with you know other forms of of uh, VPN like IPsec or OpenVPN, is like, man, you know these key pairs they, they look really short. I mean, they fit on one line of text, um, you know, in your terminal, right? And like when I generate a key for OpenVPN, uh, you know, I mean my Diffie Hellman keys and my certs, you know, they're like four, they're they're usually like four K, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like a screen full of crap instead of a line of crap so i'm like you know from my naive perspective it doesn't look to me like it's impossible to think you know hey this isn't going to be sufficient at some time in the future and we're going to need a bigger key and what jason explained is that that's not really how that works there's two different types of encryption symmetric encryption and asymmetric encryption by default with wireguard what you're doing is asymmetric encryption with uh, key pairs you know private Mm -hmm. key and Mm -hmm. public key and the the key length that he has right now um basically it should be sufficient against against brute forcing period just kind of because of the way the laws of physics work and you know how many right. electrons you can move in a in a given moment there's right. not really any projected this is no longer going to be sufficient key size the reason that you have these enormous freaking keys um in older algorithms is because you have these attacks versus the crypto where what you thought you know it, it's not really you're not really defending against brute force of that 4096-bit key. What you're defending against is these attacks on the crypto that mean you don't really need brute force. It's exactly. a lot more like a dictionary attack on a password at right, that point. Right. So the you're not allowed to use any insecure algorithms on uh, WireGuard. And as far as we know right now and for the foreseeable future, that's just not going to be an issue. So 256 bits is plenty. That's all you need. Now, the other thing about that is with asymmetric encryption, the boogeyman in the room is the rise of quantum computing. Right. Um, as quantum computing becomes more advanced, it's possible that that may no longer be sufficient. But Jason's already – he's also included a hedge against that. You, you may see if you look into WireGuard, there's an optional pre-shared key that you can layer on in addition to to the key pair now that pre-shared key that's your symmetrical encryption and the tldr there for us non-crypto folks is that symmetric encryption doesn't have any particular vulnerability to quantum computing the way the asymmetric stuff does so you know if you want to use the optional psk you no longer have to worry about you know the quantum computing boogeyman
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the other thing is, and I always get a little hung up when people start talking about quantum computing. The truth of the matter is, we have a long laundry list of problems if quantum computing ever becomes readily accessible in a thing that we're going to have to that we're going to have to worry about long before we get down to our VPN solutions, right? Like the internet?
0: Uh I, I don't know about that honestly. I think our privacy is going to be the first freaking thing we have to worry about if quantum computing becomes a big deal.
1: Fair enough. I just I question if if uh you know, if bank websites and all of that aren't going to be the aren't going to be the 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 uh the forefront and, and the real problem. That's the low hanging fruit it would seem to me. But uh, you know, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe it is people will target the the VPNs and the uh, the internal networks first, right?
0: Well, I mean, it's kind of the same thing both ways, right? Uh, I mean, you're still talking about asymmetric encryption either way, whether you're talking about breaking the SSL on a bank website or you're breaking the encryption on a VPN right. tunnel. Yeah, exactly. That was, it, that was my point. It's your privacy you're worried about. F- either Fair way. enough.
1: Fair enough. But that was my point: was that when you get to when you get when when we start having to worry about SSL itself, it's like, well, the VPN solution behind the web server. I mean, you know. But but this is all insanely interesting stuff. And if there's anything I'm missing or anything I'm not asking, please uh, please throw it in there.
0: I, you know, I, I think we're pretty good right now. Um, you know, I'm I'm still banging on this stuff really hard. Uh, I still want to prove it out a little bit more and uh, make sure that what I'm seeing from my sysadmins perspective will really hold up. But I, I, I run a, a monitoring VPN with hundreds of hosts connected 24-7, 365 that, you know, I expect to maintain their own connections and never go down. And it's been kind of a nightmare under OpenVPN. Um, If you only manage two or three or, you know, maybe even 10, you're going to be like, oh, it's not a big deal. This stuff works. You know, once in a blue moon, something goes down. But if you manage several hundred, you're like, I'm just constantly having to deal with this and I'm trying to write watchdog scripts to automatically kill, you know, a hung process and restart it from scratch. But I'm constantly having to refine that, and it just sucks. And I'm really hoping WireGuard is going to fix that for me. It's also interesting for the folks that, you know, you mentioned people that want to run it on their router. OpenVPN run on a router kind of sucks because ARM CPUs are really sort of wimpy for the job. Sure. Now, it doesn't bother me because I don't do it on the router. I just port forwarded it through the router, and I run it on a VM or a server that's on x86, and right now i can easily keep up with any internet connection i've got available but and again i have not tested this in theory wireguard is much higher performance and you should be able to see you know several fold increase in throughput which then might make it possible to say you know hey maybe two or three years from now you know your your little cheap off the shelf linksys router might be able to handle a wireguard connection for you and actually keep up with your internet connection
1: absolutely and and you know we have run i mean we don't use cheap little Linksys routers but we use enterprise grade stuff but a lot of them have arm chips in them and uh, and yeah you do see you do see in the system you know in the in the system performance tab you see it tank when when those things come up anyway thank you so much Jim for taking the time i know that we had a bit of a time mix up but i appreciate you hanging in there and being willing to share this with us because i think this is all really important stuff i really believe that wireguard is the next big thing in linux i think linus reaction shows that to us so jim salter jrs-s.net is his blog wireguard.com is the website for the WireGuard project jim salter thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Ask no program we'll get you back in the program real soon thanks Noah. appreciate it 1-855-450 no it's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com make your voice heard become a part of the program please welcome lenovo to the lvfs i'd like to formally welcome lenovo lvfs for the fast past few months myself and Peter Jones have been working on the partners of Lenovo and the ThinkPad, ThinkStation, and ThinkCenter groups inside Lenovo to get automatic firmware updates working across a huge number of different hardware models. Obviously this is a big deal. Tens of thousands of people are likely to be offered firmware updates within the next few weeks and hundreds of thousands over the next few months. Understandably we're not just flipping the switch and opening the flood so if you've not seen anything in FW Update Manager update or the gnome software center please don't panic over the next few weeks we'll be moving it all to different models from various testing and embargoed remotes to stable remotes and so the list of hardware will grow that said we'll only be supporting UEFI hardware produced fairly recently so there's no point in looking for updates on your beloved t61 I also can't comment on whether Lenovo branded hardware is going to be which Lenovo branded hardware is going to be supported in the futures I don't know myself now this is a huge step because and if you don't know what fw update is what this is is linux now has the ability for the software updater inside of the user space to actually make firmware updates to the laptop most of you out there maybe not most of you because you guys are technical users but most people out there do not update the former on their laptop and there is all sorts of things that updating the firmware on your laptop gets you better battery life, uh, you know, uh, mitigation to security flaws. Uh, there are certain Wi-Fi drivers or Wi-Fi cards that are blacklisted and whitelisted depending on the, the firmware version of, of the computer. And all of these things are solved when you update the firmware on your laptop. And I've had numerous support calls where I'll call Dell and I'll say, I have this latitude, I have this precision, and it's not doing this or not doing that. And we don't even get to the part where they say, well, boot into Windows and run this troubleshooting tool, and then I have to tell them that I haven't used Windows in 10 years. That we stop at, could you try this firmware update? I download it, I give it a shot. Lo and behold, the firmware update works. Now, for many of us that are running Linux and, and run only Linux on our laptop, that can be a bit of a problem for us sometimes because oftentimes some of these manufacturers will have firmware updating software that requires Windows to actually load the firmware update into the computer. And certain manufacturers... Um, that I don't necessarily really want to name on the air but they are not a bigger they are not a big enough manufacturer to be able to work with the hardware vendor to the people that actually put the computers together they're not big enough to be able to 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 offer firmware updates and so you have to go look at who the original ODM manufacturer is and go download that firmware and then update that machine yourself the the person who you actually bought the computer from can't help you with that legally per the agreement that they have with their ODM. So FW Update solves this in a number of different ways because what it means is that these hardware manufacturers can work directly with, um, they can push their firmware directly to the software updates inside of Linux. And if you're running GNOME software or if you're running FW Update, your system will just download as part of your operating system update, it will download the latest firmware for your BIOS or your UEFI interface. And you'll never know. And so this is a really, really fantastic thing. Now, one of the things that the, uh, the author goes on to say is updating the firmware is slightly odd in that it sometimes needs to be rebooted a few times with a few scary sounding beeps. It, of course, works with Secure Boot turned on. If you've enabled it and the boot order lock, you'll have to turn the boot order lock off manually. I'd like to personally thank Lenovo engineers and managers. And then he goes on to say something interesting. He says that we should we should really thank Lenovo for being willing to do all of this and instead of chastising them to being late to the party because there's, there's a lot of people out there and I've already seen this happening on the internet, guys. There are people on the internet are already coming out and saying, Lenovo, you guys suck. You're not true Linux enthusiasts. You don't offer Linux on your laptop and you weren't on this firmware update thing and Dell was there. Where are you? And that doesn't really do anybody any good. And so we as a community, we have got to be more supportive of manufacturers when they do cool things. And here's the other thing. FW Update is so universal and is now transitioning so many hardware brands for one reason and one reason only, because it is truly an amazing piece of technology. And I hate to be the one to break this to you guys, but not everything that comes with the GPL license is totally fantastic and amazing. Now, WireGuard, admittedly, fantastic. What Jim was talking about about the his OpenOid project built on things like D and built on ZFS, those are amazing technologies. And when we create amazing and compelling technologies, we don't have to work on the messaging of it. We don't have to work on the marketing, and we don't have to worry about beating people over the head with a five-pound sledgehammer to get them to use open source because the technology is so amazing, they want to use it. What we need to become better as a community, I think, we need to be getting... Be become better at pointing out terrible projects, pointing out terrible code, pointing out deficiencies in the open source community and saying that project sucks. That's why nobody wants to use it. And we need to come up with something better. We either need to put our weight behind it. We need to sometimes we have to open our wallets and put our wallets behind it. Or We need to start a, comp- a competitor to it to make something better, because time and time again, what I'm seeing and what I have seen is that when the open source technology is good, people use it. And when the open source technology is bad, we get mad at the people for not using it. And that process doesn't work. Now, I say that and I have to add one small little stipulation or little gotcha with it. And that is that that is not to be taken as an excuse for people to say, well, Linux is just a bad OS and all their software sucks. And so uh, (laughs) I have to use a Mac or a Windows PC. That's not to be an excuse. So there, there's work to be done on both sides, because I think that's part of the reason why a lot of people in the open source community have such a chip on their shoulder is because a lot of times they'll say, look at this really cool piece of software that's on Linux. And rather than sitting down and saying, OK, let me look at that piece of software and let me show you what I was using on the Mac or on Windows and let me show you what I don't like about it and, and what what's not working right. There's a lot of people that will just look up and go, oh, it's open source. Oh, it runs on Linux. Oh, it sucks. I don't want to see it. I, it's just junk i know it's junk because it runs on linux and it's not it's not a real operating system i think that really rubs a wound raw and so for those reasons i think a lot of people are are understandably upset when we try to have that discussion and so there's work to be done on both ends we'll leave it there thunderbird 60 comes out a new major version of the email for client thunderbird will be released later today and brings a version of the program thunderbird 60 while august 6 2018 is the release date that's tomorrow thunderbird 60 won't be offered through the emails client automatic updates system that is that is today the thunderbird team did not reveal why thunderbird 60 is only offered as a direct download at this point the system requirements for thunderbird 60 have dropped support for windows xp windows vista and the server versions of windows no change for linux mac versions in other words, Thunderbird runs on Windows 7 or newer, and Windows Server 2008 R2 or newer on the server side only. Thunderbird users will, who run extensions, will not that if these extensions are not explicitly marked as compatible with Thunderbird 60, then they will get notices that they will be disabled on first startup to prevent uh, compatibility issues. Now, it is possible to override the Thunderbird 60 extension uh, strict extension enforcement we have that link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknowishow.com just bear in mind if you do this you can go into the options and click on an extension and just say don't enforce compatibility but understand that you're not actually forcing thunderbird 60 to be compatible with these extensions you're just telling thunderbird 60 to not pay attention to if the flag is set to yes this extension works in thunderbird 60 or not thunderbird mozilla is trying to make all of the manuf- all of the people who create these extensions. They want to make them responsible to explicitly tell your system, yes, this item works with Thunderbird 60, or no, this item does not work in Thunderbird 60. And they're giving you the option to disable that. But just remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Now. Some of the changes of note that I think are pretty cool. Support for the FIDO U2F standard and OAuth 2. This is really fantastic. If you've been listening to the Ask Noah program from day one, we have been recommending the FIDO U2F standard YubiKey, okay? I use it for everything. I use it for my SSH authentication. I use it for all of my two-factor... through a web browser using Yubico service we uh, we actually we never aired it I don't think but we actually did an interview with some of the people from Yubico because they make such a fantastic product if you're an IT system administrator and you SSH more than to like 10 machines you have to have a YubiKey because you can plug this thing in and we're talking about encryption we're talking about asymmetrical and symmetrical encryption right one of the biggest problems that you run into with with the with the encryption used for SSH is you have a public key and a private key, and if at any point that private key becomes copied or duplicated or compromised, you may never know. So if I borrow your laptop for a second and copy that private key off and make a copy and store it on my laptop, you'll never know that that, that private key has been copied. And because of that, at Ultraspeed Technologies, we have a policy. Technicians are required every time they purchase a new computer, if they're going to generate an SSH key, they have to generate a new one with every computer. They're not allowed to copy those SSH keys off. Now, Can I actually enforce that policy? No, I can't. I mean, how do I know? Right. They could plug a thumb drive in and copy it off. And that's why we moved to the YubiKey. The YubiKey is a write only device. So the YubiKey never gives up the private key. So the advantage there is I can fire an employee tomorrow. Go and tell him I want his YubiKey back. If he hands it to me, I know unequivocally that there is no possible way he could have duplicated that device. On the other hand, if he doesn't give it back to me, I can go and log in and just erase his YubiKey from one place, and it, it goes through all the servers and says, okay, that key can no longer log in. Now, for me as an outside technician, especially with government contracts and those kinds of things, oftentimes there's a huge amount of paperwork associated with… Um, there's a huge amount of paperwork associated with getting your SSH key embedded into those systems. And so being able to embed it with the YubiKey and then going from one computer to the other and just plugging this key that I wear around my neck from one machine to another makes it way better. And if you have listened to us and and heeded those recommendations, now your YubiKey U2F standard can be used for authentication within Thunderbird. Um, They also offer passwords that contain non-ASCII characters. They have some calendar improvements. Support for light and dark themes. I prefer a dark theme in Thunderbird. I think it looks really great. Native notifications on Linux. That's pretty cool. New message from template option. This is something I use all the time. About 15 times a day or 20 times a day, I get emails from clients. Hey, Noah, X is broken. Really like you to stop out and take a look. And I say hi so-and-so thanks so much for taking the time to reach out to me i'm sorry that you're experiencing this difficulty but i'll be out there later this afternoon and i i have typed some formulation of that message so many times that i i should just have a template for it right well now i can now i can just create a new email that says you know reply to customer or whatever and tell them hey i'll be out there as soon as i can another thing that has bitten me using thunderbird numerous times if storing imap message fails those messages may be saved locally now if you've ever used Thunderbird for any length of time, you undoubtedly have gotten the little message, failed to save a copy of the blah, blah, blahs to sent folder, and then you click cancel, and then you don't have a record of that message anymore, but you know the message went out, and doesn't seem to matter what you click on, it never does manage to save it to the, the IMAP sent folder. Uh, so the ability to save it to the local folder, that's the next best thing, right? At least I can go back to that computer and verify that I actually did reply to that email. I don't know how many of you you know mistake the fact that you didn't reply but it's happened to me quite a few times so thunderbird 60 comes out tomorrow pretty cool software platform something i am personally very excited for i've been a huge proponent of thunderbird i've been a i've been a huge proponent of microsoft for a very long time not only do i like microsoft but i like the values that or, <laughs> microsoft not only do i like mozilla firefox but i like mozilla the company and i like the values that they hold google game console leak google plans to to rival sony playstation and xbox Google could be about to wade into a console war if recent leaks over a potential new game console are true. Developed under Google's new gaming focus subdivision Yeti, Google is purported to be launching their own game console in the coming years with games streaming as a service similar to the Netflix model. Now, here's why that is important. Streaming games is, a, it is inevitable for a couple of reasons. One, if you know any gamers, then you know that they're constantly having to update their hardware. And so they're sinking a lot of money into the ability to play games. The second thing that you know if you follow gamers is that there is this constant discussion around cheating. And so there's all sorts of different things that they try and install and uninstall and servers they connect to and things that they provision and bans and all of this stuff all centered around the idea that people should play games fairly. And then you've got the third round of things, which is pirating. Now, with advents like Steam, Pirating has gone significantly downhill, but that has created a new problem because there is hacking of one's account. And, you know, like even for me, I signed into Steam, you know, once every couple of months because I don't have time to play games. And uh, Steam sends, pops up this stupid little message and it says, hey, verify that this is still your account by clicking on this email. And if you click, no, it's not, then they make you update your email. And if you click, yes, it is, then they email you this stupid code and you got to enter it in. And so th- this has been this huge thing of trying to steal someone's account. Well, with a, with gaming as a service, that eliminates a lot of these problems because, from a pirating perspective, you can't really pirate anything. Either you have, either you have, you know, um, the authenticity to play the game, or you don't. Authorization to play the game, or you don't. And as far as the account maintenance, now you can now you can use your regular Google account supposedly, and you'd be able to log in and take advantage of the two-factor authentication and all of the stuff that you're already doing to keep your Google account secure. Now your games are just under that already, admittedly secure enough umbrella and the third thing is you don't have to worry about buying super expensive gaming hardware okay one of the things that this article talks about is it says i feel so unprofessional one pie in the sky idea i've heard is a heavy integration between yeti and or no that's not it uh sorry i feel so unprofessional i had this out of order i'm sorry Here we go a source close to google's yeti described it as imagine playing the witcher 3 within a tab on google chrome now if you think about it this is possible this is possible because here's all you have to do all you have to do is to be able to get 1080p video or maybe 4k video from the server streamed in real time to the browser and then you have to capture keyboard and mouse imports and send those back as low latency as possible back to the server And I don't think we are too far out, especially with fiber getting where it is, with uh, cable internet becoming the new standard, large pipes, low latency already, I think we're just about there. And if you think about it, you know, for those that are saying, well, you got to connect to the server and there's some sort of inherent network latency, you already have that anyway, because now all of the people that are playing together, instead of the latency from I. I had and now you have control latency whatever there is and it's minimal instead of the control was super fast but my character still has to communicate with the game servers and in this environment it would all be on supposedly one big network So I think it's going to solve a lot of these problems. Now, the article goes on to say that leaked through gaming website Kotoku, Google is set to storm the gaming world with exclusive streaming service, improved software, and a wide pool of developers to develop original games for their fans. Both Sony and Microsoft have been suffering negative news in the press, with Sony struggling to connect with players over controversial cross-platform drama, while Microsoft struggling to bring new players into their console. Google is supposedly suppo- supposedly going to enter the market with a three-pronged approach. One, they're gonna offer this streaming platform. Two, they're gonna provide really cool swanky hardware. And three, they're going to attempt to bring game developers under the Google umbrella, rather through aggressive recruiting or major acquisitions. So code, or reading between the lines there, what that says is Google's gonna try and work with some of these game developers, and if they decide not to uh, play ball, they're just gonna buy them up. Now here's the Linux hook, okay? Google runs the vast majority of their infrastructure on Linux. I have seen that firsthand. So it was no stretch of the imagination whatsoever to assume that if Google is going to bring all of these game developers in, they're going to develop a lot of these games to run Linux on the back end. Also to note, if you look at Google's history, they are interested in the service. They could care less what you, how you are accessing that service. And so to that end, they make it as browser friendly as possible. The article talks about playing these games in a chrome tab, okay? Now, I can see a lot of validity to that because they want you to be able to play it on Google hardware. I think one of the big reasons that Google is looking into these more powerful Chromebooks is because and 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 one of the reasons that they are looking at porting all of their Linux apps to uh or allowing linux apps to be ported to chromebooks is because they're looking around and going why is it that we make such expensive chromebooks we got such great hardware and we we claim to do everything in the cloud and the service and all of that and we got all these developers around here using macbooks why aren't they using our stuff oh because they can't get their work done on it that's why well maybe we should fix that turns out they can get it done on their google desktop maybe we should just let them bring those tools over to their chromebook and so again if you look at google's history i think I think this is the way they're going to go. I think that this new box that they're releasing, we have pictures linked in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. I think those. Are, I, I think that the, that device is likely going to run Linux. I think definitely the back-end infrastructure likely going to run Linux. And I think they're going to be very open to playing all of these games on this new Google Cloud gaming service. So I think as Linux users, it, it, that's one area that we have struggled with. In fact, I was just having a discussion with a group the other night. We were talking about having this LAN party, and um, they were saying, well, you know, is it really a Linux thing, or is it more of a gaming thing, and would the Windows guys just kind of overrun us? And, and it was a back-and-forth discussion, and at the end of the day, they were like, you know what, They're just there are a lot of really great games on Linux if you're a casual gamer like me. On Noscopy 1v1, no problem, on Linux. But if you are a massive gamer and you like to play all of the newest and greatest, you know, AAA titles, a lot of them aren't available on Linux. And I think this has the potential to change that. So, as always, the Ask Noah Show will keep a sharp eye on it and break it down for you as information becomes available. At the moment, this is all speculation. Now, we have to have a, some serious talk. Self, Southeast Linux Fest absolutely hands down one of my favorite conferences to attend the entire world. Bad things are happening around Southeast Linux Fest. And it has the potential to pull the legs out from Southeast Linux Fest. There are rumors going around about sponsors withholding funding until they allow certain people to speak unless they allow certain people to have track they're going to sponsor those if they're going to give sponsor money there uh, is critique and criticism of certain companies that have an nda and their company-wide nda says we are going to make demands of you the conference if we're going to give money to you and as part of the agreement this is just a company-wide thing you can't tell anyone about what's in this contract whether or not there are requirements And it has, quite frankly, to to put it as bluntly as I can, called into question the future of Southeast Linux Fest. And um, so there are a lot of people like me are very passionate about it. Jeremy Sands, the uh, lead masochist of Southeast Linux Fest, is very passionate about this and is also very passionate about Linux and allowing people to put aside their differences and come together for the code and come together for the camaraderie of Linux itself. I don't care what your politics are when you come to Southeast Linux Fest. I don't care what your diet restrictions are. I don't care what your religion is. I don't care if you're male or female. I don't care about any of that. Here's I care about. Two things. Are you a Mac or Windows user? Do you use or do you use Linux? Those are that's like the two questions I'll ask you. Do you, do you use Mac or, or Windows or do you use Linux? As all I care about and past that once we once we have corrected your ways and pulled you out off of the Mac and off of the Windows and onto the Linux. Once we fix that massive character flaw, then everything I don't care about anything else. And that's why we go to Southeast Linux Fest to talk about the Linux. And it turns out that there's some people that want to talk about a lot of other things other than the Linux. And they're trying to throw their weight around to make that happen. And um, so I went to Jeremy Sands, the lead masochist of Southeast Linux Fest. I said, look what's going to happen? What's going to happen here? And he said, listen, if they pull all of the money out and we can't have Southeast Linux fest, fine, fine. We will find a small little community college. They probably won't allow alcohol. There'll probably be no hotels nearby. There probably won't be much parking. It'll probably be way outside of an airport. So it'll be difficult to drive to difficult to fly to, but we'll have a grand old time because at the end of the day, we'll still have Linux. And, um, Then he said, I want to, I have to, I have to go public with this. I got to talk about all of this stuff that is happening with Southeast Linux Fest. And, uh, and, and him and I sat down, we had a conversation and he said, um, First of all, would you be interested in handling all of the media production for Southeast Linux Fest and and trying and 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 kind of just centering in on the A V and production aspect and stuff like that. You've done a really great job every year covering Southeast Linux Fest. How would you like to do it on behalf of us though? And so we can kind of own our own media message and stuff like that. I said, Yeah, of course, absolutely, you know, be happy to do that. Well, actually I think my answer was sure if we can do it on Linux. And of course his answer was you better be on Linux. But then we started talking about what we're gonna do about this, because if We're going to ask people to attend Southeast Linux Fest and we're going to ask people to contribute to Southeast Linux Fest. And if they're going to ask me to do some of these things, he said, you have to be prepared for the blowback because some of these people and some of these groups are very upset and they've got an extra grind. And the fallout might not just be on, you Noah know, it might be the ass Noah show audience might turn their back on you when they find some of this stuff out that you're supporting a group like us or some of these things that is happening. It might, the follow-up might be at Speed Technologies if they find out some of the things that are going on. And so you have to be prepared for that follow-up. Are, are, is that okay with you? And I said, yes, it is. And then, you know, ultimately what him and I decided was uh, we need to tell this story. And so then I, then I started talking to him and I kind of pivoted the conversation and said, well, how do we tell this story? And he said, you know what? I do trust you and the Ask Noah show to deliver the message about self. All of the dirty laundry, everything that has happened, it's going to piss a lot of people off but we have to start with a clean slate. We have to air everything out in the open. We have to say, this is where we are, this is where we this is where we came from, this is where we are, and this is where we want to go. And um, I have never done this in the history of the Ask Noah show, and I don't know that Chris would have ever allowed me to do this in the history of Jupiter Broadcasting even. We don't, we don't, and we, we're not parrots for other people to present their stuff. We are independent content creators who are out there, to make good content. And so we tend to cut things down. We tend to trim things up. We tend to tighten things up so that it makes for compelling content. And uh, one of the things that I agreed to with Jeremy was that I would deliver his message entirely without any edits. We're going to edit out like some, um, we'll probably edit out some, uh, some, you know, like uh, dead air and and pauses and coughs and throat clears and stuff like that. But other than that, he's going to come on the program and he is going to tell the entire story from start to finish, and we're not going to adulterate that or edit it at all. We're gonna give it to him in his own words. And that was what I agreed to if we were going to responsibly air this. And you guys are going to have to listen to all of that and make a decision about if you want to support this effort of not caring about anybody else or anything else, not letting anything taint this, and just caring and and focusing in on Linux, And just, uh, you know, live and let live, so to speak. Or if that's not going to be the case and. um, He's going to air all that dirty laundry, and it's I think what we're going to end up having to do is split this up into three episodes. So this will be episode one where I'm kind of telling you what to expect, and I'm splitting it up into three episodes for for two reasons. The first is because I, I just I legitimately cannot get that much content into one hour. I don't even think I can get that much content into two or three hours. Okay. So that's reason one is I have to split it up just so that I don't drive everybody nuts with like a five hour program. The second reason I have to split it up is because I know that there are some of you out there that say, listen, I'm never going to go to Southeast Linux Fest. I don't really care what Southeast Linux Fest is doing. It's a smaller conference. They can do whatever they want. And it just it's not it's not for me. And that's fine. And so if that's the case and if that's you and you're not interested in hearing the dirty laundry or hearing what's going on and what some people are trying to do or have tried to do and what we're going to try to do to combat what they're trying to do. If that's not for you, that's fine. And so we're going to release this as a special edition coming out later in the week. We're going to have Jeremy sit down with us. He's going to tell us the entire story, and that's going to be one episode. And then we're going to have another gentleman that Jeremy has been working with to address this situation, and that gentleman is named Paul M. Jones. And Paul M. Jones presented at Southeast Linux Fest the last couple of years And so we are going to use uh, some of that talk that I recorded, um, and we're going to present some of that talk and give you some insight and background to it so that when Jeremy comes on the program to explain the situation that self is in, it'll make a little bit more sense. And you'll have some background on what he's talking about and why he's making the decisions he's making. But this is something that's very important to me. And it's something that I think is really important as us as a Linux community, because I think this is a question we have to answer. Where do we draw the line? What are we willing to tolerate inside of our community? And what are we what do what are we willing to put our foot down and stamp out, even if it means excluding people from the Linux community? Those are tough questions. We have to answer those. And so I don't mean to get drugged down in the mud, but this is a really important topic that's that's really important to me. And so the Ask Noah show is throwing its full weight behind um, Southeast Linux Fest and what they're trying to do. And so is Alto speed technologies. And uh, I can't speak for Jupiter Broadcasting. Um, I don't want to. And I don't want to drag them into the mess, so to speak. Um, but that's where I stand personally with it. And so watch the Twitter feed at Ask Noah show. And we'll let you know when those episodes are out. Of course, if you subscribe to the feed at podcast, ask Noah show, you'll find it. It'll just pop up in your podcast player. Won't go over the radio. I've never done this in the history of the Ask Noah show, but I will not cut the episode. So it might be an hour, it might be two hours, it might be three hours, however long it takes to tell this story. That's how long the episode's going to be. And if it's for you, it's for you. And if it's not, it's not. So keep an eye out on that. And uh, if you do decide to support us, we really appreciate it. Now, one other thing just to kind of so we don't end on on down in the gloom there. One thing that, that bit me that I just I have to poke a little bit of fun at. I really like snap packages and I have talked about how great snap packages are over and over and over again. And my son uh, has been installing Minecraft with the snap package. Well, it turns out there's a problem with the latest snap of Minecraft and it doesn't let you log on to a service as the authentication servers are, are full or something like that. So I told him just wait a little bit update. One day goes by two days goes by a week goes by week and a half goes by. Now it's now we're like two weeks and, uh, I talked to my son and I said, hey, uh, maybe we just got to go download the deb. So we download the deb and sure enough, that works perfectly. And so then I had to ask the funny question like, okay, if the whole idea of snap packages is that we can put this one package up and that's the one place that we just have to make sure it works and then everything works because of the environment and all of that other stuff and operating system agnostic, blah, blah, blah. We have all of that and one of the most popular games to play, we can't keep that snap package up to date. Kind of a failure on the snap system, if you ask me. Now, I know that there's going to be somebody out there that's going to say, no, there there goes Noah ragging on all the people that uh, volunteer their time to create the snap package. Did you file a bug report? Nope, I didn't. Did you mention it to anybody? Nope. Just saying it on the air. And I'm sure I'm going to get some hate for it, but that's okay. So, check. Uh, if anybody out there knows anything about that, about how to fix the snap package for Minecraft, I would be interested. If you don't, that's fine, too. But uh, it's certainly been pretty frustrating. Also of interest, my son crashed our Minecraft server. Maybe I'll have to tell that story next episode. Hey, guys, did you know this episode is available as a downloadable podcast? To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and materials referenced in this episode. You can get the latest, of course, by following us on Twitter, at Ask Noah Show. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Box Telesis for providing our phone system, Ben, our producer, and Sarah our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com.